Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. What a great American Dick Army is and certainly was when he was back here in Washington. In many respects, he represents what the founders had in mind for a citizen legislator. Yes, he was here, elected nine times to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, served 18 years, but he came as a professor, a, eth- a serious economics author with his book on price theory, which I still remember, that's long before he came to Congress, uh, and who went back to the real world after his service in Congress. Uh, I think he's enjoying fishing as much as he ever enjoyed uh, being in the halls of the House chamber and uh, riding the subway back and forth from Rayburn uh, to the House chamber. Uh, He was elected, of course, 1984 as part of the so-called Texas Six-Pack when we actually won six Republican seats in the House of Representatives in the Reagan second election. He was very instrumental with Newt Gingrich in terms of authoring the contract with America. He then served as Republican majority leader, uh, was a serious legislator. Toward the end of his service in the House, he became chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee and gave us the Department of Homeland Security Affairs. So every time any of us goes through TSA at an airport, you can blame the hassle that you're receiving on Dick Army. But he was actually much more constructive than that. I look back and see his early volume, The Freedom Revolution, where he has a few real gems that he shares with all of us. Items like, um, no one spends someone else's money as wisely as he spends his own. Or, there's nothing more arrogant than a self-righteous income redistributor. Dick Army understands economics. He understands public policy. He understands what America is all about. So really, it's my very great pleasure to join my Heritage colleagues in saying, Dick Army, we love you, we salute you, and we pay tribute to you. Welcome to the brink of another Republican revolution, lessons from Representative Dick Army and the 1994 Congressional Triumph. Please welcome the President of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thank you so much. Those of you who are here in the audience, those of you who've joined online on C-SPAN, welcome. This is going to be a riveting conversation, and I say that as someone who is a historian. So just a a couple of minutes of comments before I turn it over to my friend and colleague, Steve Moore, who really will be running the show tonight. And that is, in 1994, I was president of my university's college Republicans. And it was more than a dream as a son of the Reagan revolution that Dick Armey would soon be the majority leader, that Phil Graham's economic expertise, along with leader Armey's, at least for a narrow window in American political history, would be ascendant in this town. And while we have to be careful as historians not to dwell in the past, 
we can, as we are on the brink of a red wave, and I mean that philosophically, not as a partisan, this year, know that that isn't merely about party registration, about one party being in charge instead of another. It is about the ideas that define us as a people, namely freedom, flourishing, and this town and this government <coughs> spending a hell of a lot less money than it does. And so it is a great, great privilege to have Dick Armey, Senator Phil Graham, my one of my political mentors who a couple years later, he was thinking about running for a different office. He was in Louisiana and I said, Senator, you know, this is before there was a red wave in Louisiana. Would you adopt us as, as our third Senator? He said, yes, son, you just keep doing what you're doing. So here we are many years later, Senator, good to see you. Welcome back to Heritage. But without further ado, it's also an equally great privilege to have Steve Moore back here at the Heritage Foundation to welcome him here as our distinguished fellow and to turn this program over to him. Thank you, Kevin, uh, for the kind introduction. And uh, I, I'm loving this new era um, at Heritage. It's fantastic. And his leadership has been amazing. Um, we're going to have some fun. Uh, today, tonight, and uh, welcome to our C-SPAN audience as well. Um, Dick Army is a, is a legend. Uh, he's one of the few people, in addition to Phil Graham, who actually cut this, came to this town to actually make government smaller, not bigger. So thank you to both of you. And um, so we have, uh, I just got this note from Newt Gingrich, who was the, uh, as you all know, the Speaker of the House and was the one with Dick Army who really engineered the Republican Revolution in 1994. So I just thought, if I may, Dick, I'd love to read this comment uh, from, from Speaker Gingrich, and it's, it's really sweet. He says, um, Dick Army was invaluable as a creative, dynamic, energetic member when we were in the minority, and as a key part of the Contract of America majority, an extraordinary force for good ideas and real reforms and a leader who helped reelect the House GOP majority for the first time in 68 years and helped develop the only four balanced budgets in our lifetime. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, his new book provides vivid and wise insights into the legislative process and the House as an institution with gratitude, Newt Gingrich. So that's a really nice um, uh, tribute to Dick Army. This is the book. If you haven't, got, if you haven't gotten this book yet, um, it's a great read. I, I actually think this book should be read by all people, every political science major in America should be reading this book called Leader. It really is uh, a, um, a great discussion of how Washington really works and how things get done and don't get done in Washington. And so um, we're going to kind of have some fun telling our, our Dick Army stories. There's probably in this room, Dick, at least 15 or 20 people who worked for you at one time or another. Uh, and I, I say, um, in, in addition to all of the great contributions you made directly to policy, um, one of your great contributions uh, was the incredible number of successful people who you mentored, including myself. I, and so my little story about Dick Army is that I worked for Dick um, on the Joint Economic Committee in 1993 and 1994, and I remember that um, that when um, that when uh, I was on the committee, and I, I decided by the, the summer of 19 of 1994 that I was going to leave 
the committee because I just had, had it. You know, if you were a minority member, if you were working for a minority member in the House, you might as well have not been there. I mean, the Democrats were so arrogant at that time after what 40 years of rule. You know, it was like Republicans weren't even there. And so I remember I went to Dick and I said, "Look, I love working for you, Dick, but I just can't." I can't do this anymore. It's pulling my hair out. We're not really having much of an impact here. And, and I'll never forget Dick, um, you know, turned to me and said, Steve, you cannot leave now. Remember this? And you said, don't leave now because we're going to take the house in November of 1994. And, you know, Dennis, you were a part of that revolution as well. And I said, Dick, Whatever you're smoking, I want some of it, you know, <laughs> because it seems so incredibly, and people forget how improbable it seemed, and that how many seats did you have to pick up, like 60 seats or something like that, and it was, it was obviously a, a tidal wave election, and it was in no small part because of Newt Gingrich and Dick Armey and the contract with America, and Republicans, there's a lesson here, when Republicans stand for something, they win, when they're just uh, the lesser of two evils, which is most of the time, they lose. And so uh, that was an incredible period. And what you all did, you and Nude and the whole, the whole team from 1995 through 2000, it's true. Although four, only four balanced budgets in the last 50 years. We did welfare reform. We did the capital gains tax cut, all of these incredible things. Dick Army was also, for those of the younger people in this room, you were the first inspiration for the flat tax idea. You were the one of the first inspirations for medical savings accounts. You never were with me on the term limits idea. I don't think you like that too much. But uh, anyway, th it's just so fantastic to have you here. So I wanted to turn the podium over to Senator Phil Graham, who actually I first met in this building, you know, back in 1984, 85, when uh, when Dick Ar when uh, uh, Phil Graham came up with this crazy idea called the uh, they called it the uh, Graham Rudman bill, and uh, the Graham Rudman bill was basically automatic spending cuts if we couldn't get that <coughs> deficit down, and uh, all of Washington you know, had palpit heart palpitations over this, but it was one of the few times, Senator, that we actually cut spending under that Graham-Rudman bill, and he has been a crusader for small government as well. Also hails from the great state of Texas, so give a nice, warm um, welcome to Phil Graham of Texas. Nobody told me that I was going to say anything. Um, I will say a few things. Um, President Reagan once put his arm around me and said, I want you to look me in the eyes. He said, Cap Weinberger tells me that your Graham Rudman is more dangerous than the Soviet menace. <laughs> Will you assure me that that's not the case? And I said, yes, Mr. President, I'll assure you it's not the case. Well, Dick and I were destined to become friends because we were both from Texas, we were both economists, and we both came to Washington because we wanted less government and more freedom. Uh, there are not a lot of people who come to government with the idea of having less of the very institution they come to be part of. And the thing that I always found was very interesting, and I never lost my sort of awe of it, and that was that Dick 
always had this view that he was like a spy in the Soviet Union that had become a leader of the Central Committee and was one of the people actually running the Soviet Union. So that when we got together, it was sort of like I was there as his American handler, and he was telling me what was we were actually doing inside the belly of the beast. And I never ceased to find that fascinating. I served in Washington for a quarter of a century. And I dealt with a lot of people. But I can say without any fear of contradiction that of all the people that I ever served with, Dick Army was less interested, that's somebody, Dick Army was less interested in getting credit for things he did than anybody I have ever dealt with in Washington. Um, as far as I could tell, his aspiration, other than saving America, was owning a Ford S-150 King Ranch version. <laughs> and uh, he got it. And Dick's story is a story that reassures me about America. Uh, uh, Dick was from Kandu, North Dakota. That's right, isn't it? I don't have any idea where it is. Um, I went to North Dakota campaigning once, and I had to plug in the car to keep the tires from freezing. But he came from Kandu, North Dakota, and he became the first Republican majority, first Republican majority leader in 40 years. And he was an indispensable leader in changing America and implementing the final stones on the Reagan revolution. And then he retired and went back to being just a plain citizen. Uh, to me, that is a reassuring story about America. Uh, I once had a guy in China asked me, where did you come from? Uh, you know, we try to look at leadership in America, and we just can't figure out where you came from. And I tried to explain to him that in America, the greatness of our country is that leaders just come from nowhere. Uh, and so people are always saying, where are the Reagans and where are the Dick Armies now that we need them? Well, I never despair because I know they're out there. They're waiting to be discovered. They're waiting for the right moment. And uh, the only thing that I, well, let me just say, the contract with America. Dick Army wrote the contract with America. He gave it the name contract with America. I was the chairman of the Republican Senatorial Committee we tried to copy it by having our seven more in 94. We won more than seven seats, by the way. Uh, now, I'm not taking anything away from Newt Gingrich. He grabbed it. He ran with it. He made it famous. He deserves all the credit he gets. But Dick Army was the father of Contract with America.
I don't want to overstate my welcome, but let me just say a couple of more things. From the beginning of the Republic, we had wasted money because of an inability to close government facilities, especially military bases. And so what Dick did in a new and totally original idea of his own creation was he came up with the idea of a commission and then a straight up or down vote in Congress to approve the closing of military bases so that it allowed a congressman or a senator to go to the military base as the bulldozer was pulling up to knock down the gate and lie down on the ground telling his staff, now just at the last moment, rush in and drag me out and I'll be begging to die, but pull me out. <laughs> and then it'll be gone. And that's exactly what happened. We closed a lot of military bases that should have never been built to begin with and were being operated just draining the blood out of American defense. Um, Dick was very instrumental in welfare reform. The most successful reform of a government program in American history. Why we don't take that reform program and apply it to every entitlement program of the federal government, I don't understand. The average household in the bottom 20% of American income earners gets over $45,000 a year in benefits from the federal government. Is there any wonder that you can't get people to work? And we were able to implement a program in an area that was the most difficult area where you've got an unmarried woman with children a situation where Senator Warren would say it's impossible for her to work. Well, guess what? We reformed the program, we set time limits, and within four years, 50% of the people who had been on the program were working. It's amazing what incentives do. So I'm very happy to be here today uh, to, one, give credit where not enough credit has been given partly because he lacked the skill to blow his own horn. <laughs> and secondly, to just say to Dick that it was a great privilege those years working with you. One of the highlights of my career uh, was getting together with Dick to get his spying report, that he was actually running the system he came to Washington to dramatically reform. And so, Dick, congratulations. Thank you, Senator. Those were terrific comments. Um, just one thing about the contract with America. I remember Dick talking to you after the Republicans, you know, won the Congress, and, and I kind of was apologetic. I said, you know, Dick, I didn't really pay all that much attention to the contract with America because I never thought you would win. And you said, well, Steve, if people thought we would win, they never would have signed the contract with America. So, um, that was a great, great period. And, and incidentally, I think you all, remember your first 100 hours 
what was it, the first 100 hours, uh, you did, I mean, you passed more good legislation than probably in the previous 25 years in that first 100 hours. So it was an amazing revolution. Um, we have, by the way, could, I see a lot of new people have come in. If, if, would I, I'd love if any, all of you in this room who at some point in your career worked for Dick Army, could you please stand up? That's amazing. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'll say it again, Dick Leg Dick's legacy is really the amazing people he's mentored over the years. Uh, okay, so um, I wanted to call on Kevin Kramer. Where are you, Senator? There you are. Could, uh, we have another person, the second most person from North, uh, most famous person from North Dakota here. Uh, Kevin Kramer is a senator from the uh, state of North Dakota, and he is also, um, I believe you are all, you're also from Kandu? He's also, is, how, what are the odds that two of the most famous people in Washington would come from Kandu, North Dakota? Senator, thanks so much for being thanks, here. Thanks, Steve. All right. Neither Dick nor I are the most famous person from Kandu. However, Peter Davidson could attest that Dave Osborne, one of Dick's classmates, all pro running back for the Vikings, was, is from Kandu. He's from Kandu. He, he and Dick are classmates. Well, um, I, I, this is such an honor, Steve. Thanks for including me. Um, to be able to participate in something like this, my 10 years in Congress, this is a highlight. It is. It really is, Dick. I, I mean it. And for, for the handful of you who read the whole book, um, Susan and I, I know, did. She, she, I'm sure she proofread it many times. Uh, but I read the whole book. I might have been the first person in America to read the whole book. I mean, I, I was texting Dick as I was reading it on the airplane going, I'm laughing so hard the people next to me are concerned. <laughs> um, but just to give you a little context, if you didn't read the book, I, my daddy and Dick Army lived across the alley from one another in Kandu. And in the book, Dick tells the story about Richard Kramer, the elder Richard. There's a number of Richards that are in the book that he references, but um, was tasked with teaching the younger Richard how to climb poles when Dick joined the uh, Rural Electric Cooperative as a lineman uh, for a summer job. Now, I love the fact that Dick had to go to a union shop and um, work for co-op. Uh, you know, that was the last time he did either of those things. But, <laughs> but, but more importantly than that even, um, Charlie Army, Dick's brother, who along with Phil Graham really is are two, the two stars of the book, I'd say. They, they get more ink than, than anybody else combined. And so Charlie Army, Dick's older brother, and my daddy were best man at each other's weddings. They both married well. They both stayed married to the same person their entire life. So just to give you a little, a little um, of that. Um, my dad did teach Dick. Dick didn't put this part in the book. He put the, the part about the climbing poles in the book. He didn't put this. My dad, Dick tells me, gave him his first, one of his first economics lessons. Yep, D Dick and dad, after work one day, Dick said, let's go down to, was it Gordy's Bar downtown Kandu and have a drink? No, maybe he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but Richard Kramer said, Dick, you know that for the price of a drink at the bar downtown, we could go to the liquor store and get a six pack. And my dad retired, a lineman, and Dick wrote the book on price theory. Literally wrote the book on price theory. But the best book Dick has ever written is, is clearly leader. His memoirs are spectacular, and I, I encourage everybody that's listening and watching to read it. And we celebrate that for sure. Um, 
because not only is, as Steve says, not only is it a great documentation of a historical moment, I mean, it is a great documentation of a significant historical moment here, but it has countless lessons to all of us on how to govern and better yet, how to behave, really. And the two go hand in hand. I, I told you I laughed so hard at some points that people were concerned about me sitting, sitting on the plane. But I'm just going to give you a couple of the lessons that I learned. First of all, um, <laughs> I, the, one of the parts where I really laughed the hardest is, is when, when the uh, wives, the faculty wives accosted you, Dick, uh, because he, as a professor, had written this piece that the newspaper picked up that proved that um, stay-at-home wives were overpaid. Well, maybe not exactly, but it's something like that. Something like that, that in fact they were paid both for their consumption as well as for their, as well as for their productivity. And so, of course, he's doing all this wonky stuff. But here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of shortly after Dick went to Congress, his alma mater, where he got his master's degree, the University of North Dakota, at the time known as the Fighting Sioux, until the NCAA said it was hostile and abusive. But which, but which, by the way, because of scarcity, after that happened, Dick called me and said, can you run over to Grand Forks and get me a Fighting Sioux hockey jersey before, <laughs> before they're, they're all gone? They were smart enough uh, at UND to print a whole bunch of them. But anyway, um, but at that event where he received the coveted Sioux Award, the, the MC was the president of the Alumni Association and the state Republican uh, majority leader of the state legislature in North Dakota, Earl Strindon. And Dick gets up and gives this wonderful speech starting out about why, how important the university system is because it not only teaches our children, but it teaches our children's children. Right? That's pretty important. And that's where the good news ended and he pivoted to the problem with the university system, of course, Phil, is faculty governance. Right? And um, so he, he gives this oration on, on faculty governance, why, how bad that is, and how it's ruining the university system. And he gets all done and gets this wonderful ovation from all the wealthy donors to the University of North Dakota. And Earl Strindon gets up and says, just one quick announcement, the dessert reception in honor of Congressman Army that was going to be hosted by the faculty has been canceled due to a recent lack of interest. <laughs> um, one other thing about about North Dakota, Dick's beloved home state, and most of his family still lives there. I was just in Kandu about a week or two ago and, um, and saw some of them. But his preference for free markets, Senator Graham, um, really supersedes the prairie populism of North Dakota. He would have had a hard time getting elected there, let's just say. And um, uh, although I think today he'd, be, he'd have a much better chance, but he did come and off, oftentimes came, campaigned for me in the 90s. When I was young party chairman, he was the guy that would come and give the Lincoln Day speeches when we had no celebrities in, from North Dakota. We didn't even have a living Republican that had been in Congress uh, at that time. Um, but, but we always had to get assurances that he would not talk about the farm bill or the farm programs, <laughs> and he would certainly not give his opinion about ethanol. And, until <laughs> until, until he, he, he came to cut the ribbon on the Ronald Reagan Republican senator, senator in Bismarck. It just so happened that that same day, John Hoven, the governor at the time, now my colleague in the Senate, was to give the keynote address at the North Dakota Petroleum Council, but he got sick. So they called, scrambled in the morning, and said, could you get Dick Army possibly to fill in for John Hoven? And I said, I think I can. And as we were in the parking lot of the Radisson Inn, I said, this is your chance to say whatever you want about ethanol in North Dakota. <laughs> and he got up, I'll never forget, he gets up in front of all these oil men, he said, Kramer said, I could say anything I want about ethanol, 
it was such a damn dumb idea the Russians didn't even try it. And, 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 and true, true story. And he got a standing ovation. He didn't have to say another word. I did one time, yes. I did one time try to plead my case for the farm bill. I, in his office, I said, Dick, you've got to admit, free markets don't work in every situation because agriculture is heavily subsidized by all of our competitors. It's, we just are trying to have a, you know, a, a fair market or a, a, at least level the playing field a little bit, to which he said, without thinking about it, contemplating, worrying about my feelings, he said, I've never met an American who decided to become a farmer because somebody put a gun to their head. And I said, okay, we'll talk about something else. Let's talk about <laughs> Glenda or Edie. Um, anyway, um, I know there's a 39-page uh, index on Dick's book. I bet I have twice that many pages that I've written of notes, Dick, so that I will always be able to go back to the things that, that, that really matter. Because Dick took Army's axioms and turned them into really into Army's parables. Again, historical as it is, it, it taught us a lot of things. Dick, you're, I, I agree with Steve. I think it should be, it should be required reading for every freshman for sure for every freshman that comes to Congress for sure. Because one thing that Newt Gingrich said to me, the first time I ever met him, and I told him that you and my dad grew up together, he said, Dick Army is the epitome of what one man can do in Congress if he has the will. Ladies and gentlemen, when he passed BRAC, he was a junior member of the minority party. That should be encouragement for everybody that, that aspires to do big things. The lessons of your 10 years leader proved that regular order works. Regular order works. I've been in Congress 10 years. I've never seen regular order. But your book proves that regular order works when you respect every member, when you empower every committee, and you honor the chairman. I'd like to see that return. I think we'd get back to a lot of those principles if, in fact, we just took care of those. But perhaps the greatest economics lesson that you taught us, Dick, and that you teach us in your book is that God's grace is in high demand and high supply and it's still free. It's still free. One of the most important lessons I take from Dick's book is that going home on weekends makes you a better member of Congress than going on a Codell. That, that, that one's going to hurt some people. But it's true. You inspired me to be a senator as well, and you know that. You know that. And the reason, and the way he did it, don't worry, it won't be as blunt as you put it, was because I asked him in 1993, Senator Graham, if such a celebrity from Texas as he is would ever run for the open seat vacated by Lloyd Benson, to which he said, I'm not a big enough, you know, to be a, to be a senator, but you have the potential. <laughs> really, Phil Graham and I have always, Phil Graham and you have always had, you know, great, uh, aspirations for me. Um, <laughs> Dick Army and my father learned a really valuable lesson together climbing poles. That if you work long hours, you get time and a half. And then Professor Army became, became Congressman Army and Leader Army. And he and his entire team, many of whom you've seen tonight and there are many others, proved that if you work long hours at their job, you don't make an extra penny. But just like my dad, who earned time and a half, benefited his family, Dick and his team, in their hard work, have benefited all of our families. And you can live with that assurance, Dick. 
You are a man, to quote your own book, not about you, but I'm going to quote it back to you, are a man of great stature as well as a man of great status. There are two men in my life, Dick, without whom I would never be a United States Senator. They're both named Richard. They're both from can -Do, and I love you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator. That was uh, fabulous. By the way, I, I apologize. I forgot to mention the most important person in this room, Susan Army. Susan, thank you for everything you've done. For uh, so uh, I asked a few people, um, would you like to say something about your husband? Uh, all right. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Ladies and gentlemen, Susan Army. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to come up or not, but here I am. So um, let me think about this. Uh, my husband and I have been married for almost 42 years. And I've got to say, it has never been boring. I remember when he first came to me, we'd only been married about two and a half years. And he said, you know, honey, I've been thinking about, I, I really think I could do a lot of good and do some good work if I ran for Congress. And I said, what? <laughs> I'm cooking dinner. You know, we have children here. I don't, what are you talking? So anyway, I just, very quickly, I'd read a few articles on uh, political families and how tough their lives were. And I said, if you do this, honey, I'll have to think seriously about a divorce. <laughs> and so I laughed and he said, really? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's talk about it. So we did. And he had... He really had deep felt feelings. He had a plan and he knew who he was. He was an economist and he'd been watching C-SPAN and he would talk to me about this and he would say, you know, there's so many good things that we could do. And so I just really didn't want him to do it, but he did and, he, and I encouraged him to do what he wanted, what his dream was. And he ran and against all odds he won. And then he said, you know, I'll never be in leadership. Those guys, they have to work all the time. I'm just going to be a regular member, just do my work. I said, oh, good, that's great, because we can, you know, get back to a normal life. Before I know it, he's running for leadership, and he wins. And, of course, he was right. He wasn't home for eight years. And But I look back, now that we're out of it, it's so much better I can look back, and he did so much. I mean, he and his team, they did so much. He had the best team in D.C., and they did wonderful work together. And I look back, you know, it's been, what, 20 years since he's been out of Congress. And I'm amazed, as I've gotten older, I'm amazed at what my husband and his team did. So it was worth it. It was worth it. The kids say it was good. Before we, before we hear from, uh, from uh, Dick Army, uh, there's one person in this room who really played a huge, huge role in, in uh, Dick Army becoming um, a member of Congress, but also majority leader, was with Dick for many, many years, really, literally from the very start, and that's Kerry Knott. Kerry, where are you? Can you, come, can you come up and say a few words about those? 
first campaigns, I mean, the stories of that campaign and how Dick really, you know, rolled the dice and really put everything on the line was amazing. And so uh, thank you for everything you did to make Dick Armory the success that he was. I will try. We're still trying to figure out if Susan actually voted for Dick in that first time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I mean, we've heard tonight from Senator Graham and, and, and others about how, how much of a difference he made. And it, it's true. It's a phenomenal difference he made during his career. Um, but I've tried to figure out what made him different. And so I thought of a few things. One is um, he truly is fearless. Uh, and he, he chose to run for Congress when everybody said you'd be a fool to try. Uh, everybody thought there's no way you're going to win against the the guy who was an incumbent, who had been mayor of Arlington for 26 years, who had millions of dollars, and uh, but he did it anyway. And uh, he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna win my own way." And he knocked on 10,000 doors. He made thousands of phone calls. He, you know, scratched his way. Uh, he got it done. Now, but he was honest with me when he interviewed me. He and Susan interviewed me to be his campaign manager. He goes, "I need to know two things. I don't have any money, and I don't know anybody who does." <laughs> And, and he was correct on that. Um, uh, I mean, he took on all the fights once he got up to D.C. Um, and, you know, the base closing bill, he was literally a junior member in his second term, not on the Armed Services Committee. And um, I remember one time, Senator Graham, he came back. I think he had, he, had, he had shared the idea with you. And you said, that can't be done. That's impossible. So I tried it one time. And Dick goes, I just, that just makes me want to try it that much more. And so uh, with Brian Gunderson and others on the team, uh, after you know, three or four good years of getting it done, it, it got through and it continued for many, many rounds and saved billions and billions of dollars. Um, but there were lots of other issues. He took on school choice back when even the first Bush administration was opposed to it. When it was, I think our first goal was to get a majority of Republicans to vote for it. And now it's party orthodoxy, but it wasn't for a long time. Uh, public housing reform with uh, Jack Kemp, Walter Fauntroy, and all the others uh, in those days. Um, ag subsidies, which we heard about, which people thought you could never touch. Um, protecting the homeschoolers, which I think to this day probably shut down Congress more than any other project I've ever seen. Um, but, you know, he just had remarkable success across a variety of issues. And uh, I was trying to think of, of other House members or senators who left a legacy, who left behind such a, a big body of work. And I think of maybe Ted Kennedy on the other side, Maybe Phil Graham, but there aren't many. It's a very, very short list. I think uh, you can be proud of, of what, what you left behind. Another difference is uh, he truly didn't give a hoot what anybody thought about him. Um, and that gave him remarkable freedom. Uh, he did what he thought was right and what his conscience told him to do, and he couldn't be bent. I mean, um, lobbyists couldn't bend him. His donors and his district couldn't bend him, and he lost several of them because they tried, and he refused. Uh, he told constituents what he believed, and uh, in one famous encounter at a town hall meeting, a guy just kept badgering him over something over and over again, and Dick finally said, I've had enough of you. Meet me outside after this, and I'll kick your butt. <laughs> he may not have said butt, uh, but that was kind of who he was. But he's not just a fighter. He's a, he's a thinker, and that's another thing I think that sets him apart is he really does spend time actually thinking. I think thought time today is a pretty rare commodity. Um, my kids, I try to get them to like, if you've got empty time, think. Don't just go to your phone and look at something. But 
Dick would be in the shower or he'd be out fishing or he'd go for a run or whatever, and he would, he would just think. And so on, a lot of times on Monday mornings, he would um, call me in his office and goes, hey, I've been thinking. And I knew something was up at that point, and he would have some idea. Like even back in the university, he came up with his uh, invisible foot of government uh, corollary to Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's look it up. It's really well done. But he would come up with an idea in Congress that we would either we would analyze for days, turn it into some project, and and many of them would would change America. And just he would take the time to think. And today we're just reacting to stuff that we see on the news or people are pushing. But he would actually take time and think about it. Whether he was on a power pole in North Dakota, thinking about whether he should go back to college, or thinking about the flat tax, or thinking about some other economic concept. Uh, he also analyzed people. And he could unlock people because he would study them and understand them. And to this day, you know, Newt Gingrich is a great guy. Uh, I love the guy. I spent thousands of hours in meetings with him and the rest of the leadership. I think Dick probably analyzed Newt better than anybody else who's written or talked about Newt. I'll, I'll let you read the book to see his analysis of Newt, but I think it's spot on. Uh, he read widely, and he remembered what he read from all the, the classic uh, Economist Adam Smith, he read, you know, George Gilder was a great friend of his, Thomas Sowell, Milton Freeman, some of the classics, Joseph Schumpeter. I mean, he, he read them and studied them and remembered them and learned how to apply them in different situations. Um, and he could articulate the concepts, whether it was a leadership meeting or at a town hall meeting or on a, on a TV interview, he could, he could explain it better than anybody else I think I, I, I know. And many leadership meetings, there would be a big battle about something, and Dick would then just launch into this soliloquy, bringing in several famous, you know, uh, economists of the past and just shut the whole thing down. They'd go, well, I can't argue with that. Um, and later, when, when he became a believer in Christ, years into his career, he, he learned to live out his faith in everything he did. And that gave him tremendous peace, uh, particularly toward the end when he was just unfairly maligned by a lot of people that should have been his friend. But he had to go through a lot and, and get quite a few slings and arrows. And, and he did it with a, with a peaceful heart. And uh, not many of us could have walked through it the way he did, I think. But he also developed true friendships with people that uh, you wouldn't expect. Um, those of you who've been around a while, remember Ron Dellums? Um, he and Dick were great buddies. Didn't agree on hardly anything, but they were great friends. Um, Jim Wright, um, they became great friends. Joe Moakley. Uh, Rosa DeLara, which really surprised me, but they became friends when they were doing the Homeland Security uh, Committee. Chuck Schumer, we attacked farm subsidies working with Chuck Schumer in the day. Uh, Jack Brooks, who was the crustiest guy in the world, but Dick is the only guy who could joke with him and, and get away with it. Uh, even Barney Frank, they were actually friends. People don't believe that, but they were. Um, his good nature allowed him to say things that uh, most people couldn't get away with. One of my favorite stories in the book is he was showing up at one of the office buildings, and as he was going through, uh, Maxine Waters happened to show up. And she was with some of her colleagues. Those of you who know Maxine Waters might appreciate this. And uh, Dick goes, oh, Maxine, I'm so glad to see you. She goes, why, Dick? He goes, well, now we can call off the witch hunt. <laughs> and, and she just laughed. And, and her colleague said, Maxine, you can't take that. She goes, oh, come on, that was pretty funny. <laughs> So she had a good sense of humor about it, too. <laughs> uh, uh, he often said he was, uh, he was good at being pithy, 
But people didn't always like it when he pithed on them. <laughs> um, I've recently gone back to the hill after a 20-year absence, and uh, uh, as I look at the hill today, it's a very, very different place. But um, today's political entrepreneurs, as opposed to policy entrepreneurs, today what typically passes as a as a campaign is to make an incendiary comment or perhaps tweet something uh, that's uh, outrageous, go on their favorite TV network, uh, yell at somebody on the floor, make a spectacle, and then go send out millions of emails and texts and try to raise money on it, and then go back to the same thing the next day. That's pretty much what a large part of our movement has turned into, which is, which is unfortunate. Um, we desperately need people who approach their job like Dick did. Uh, I mean, it's hard to find an entrepreneurial congressman now. Partly it's because they've shut the rules down and members don't have an opportunity to be effective on their committee or offer amendments on the floor like, like he did for so long. But um, I hope if Republicans, when they take the majority, that they will reopen this and let members show that they can be a legislator and not just a performer going forward. We need that substance. We need the, the, you know, the political changes that can be made. For anyone who wants to understand the way Congress worked during um, Army and, and Graham's era, read his book. I really think it's, it's a classic book that, that people can learn from. And, and I agree, members, maybe Heritage or someone could send a copy to all new freshmen when they come in. I think it would be uh, well worth their, uh, their time to read it. They need to learn what he did. They need to replicate it because we need more leaders who can, you know, change America the way he did. I think he did come to D.C. We used to ride around in a pickup truck back in that 1984 campaign. He said, I want to go to Washington to save America. Well, he did. He did, Dick. Uh, but we need people to do it every generation. So we need a whole new crop, I think, that can do what you did, Dick. So I, it, I'm terribly proud to have known you. Proud to have worked with you and to get to know Susan over the years and all the other members of our team that are here tonight. It was a wonderful group and uh, an incredible era. So thank you for letting me be part of it. Uh, I'm going to tell one other quick uh, Dick Armory story, and then I will. By the way, the book is Leader um, by Richard K. Armory, and it is a wonderful read. Um, just one fun story that uh, Kerry reminded me of, and I see that Andy LaPerrier here is here in the front row and worked, uh, you know, diligently and helping put together the flat tax idea, the, the Army flat tax. And you may remember this story, Andy, but we had called in a bunch of really prominent economists to, um, to you know, to to uh, to have a conversation with Dick about that plan, and and so we brought in um, Art Laffer. And I think it was Steve Forbes, and I think like Jack Kemp was there or someone. And so the three of them were huddled on this couch in Army's office, and we're kind of sitting across from them. And, and Dick Army's first statement is he said, "Gentlemen," said, "There has not been as much brain power on that couch since I slept there alone." <laughs> <laughs> Classic Dick Army. All right, now we are going to hear from Dick Army. The great, one of the greatest majority leaders in the history of the House of Representatives, Dick Armey. Thank you. Thank you all. I, I just really want to make two points. The first is about the House of Representatives. 
I came to know and understand that this is the most unique institution in the cause of liberty and representative democracy in the history of the world. And I was so privileged to be part of it. I learned to love it, the institution. I learned to love the people who love the institution. One of the people whose presence recurs in my book and one of the few people with whom I served whose approval I coveted was Senator Byrd from West Virginia. People think that's a strange choice. But I love Senator Byrd for the way he loved the institution. And I wanted him to remember me as a person that did honor to the institution. I like to believe I succeeded. When I came there, the institution was run by regular order. The Democrats were evil, we knew that. <laughs> but they ran a good ship. And as a young entrepreneurially minded member of Congress, I could innovate legislation because I knew what the rules were, thanks largely to David Hobbs, who taught me the ropes. But if you know the institutional structure and the procedures and the protocols, and if you dare to believe they will be counted on, you can exceed in your individual initiative. You can't in a world that doesn't have that structure. Now I look at the uh, Congress today and I feel bad. I remember the people that I served. I remember the Democrats who were in charge of everything. But each and every one of those grumpy old men had served this nation in the service of its defense. They knew the sacrifice of that service. They understood the cause of liberty that they had paid for. And they treated liberty with a very, very gentle and loving touch. And they deserved to be respected. And they were. But now I've watched the house fall into a different direction. I've seen Republican uh, speakers who've fallen by the wayside. And I can say I believe it is for one simple reason only. They left the structure behind. They got ahead of the body. They failed to respect each and every member and their right to participate. And then they would come to the floor with a product that had not been seen or worked on by members at large and try to bully it into passage. And it was a heartbreaking thing to watch. I believe that if the states of this country preserve their integrity as granted in the Constitution to administer their elections, and if the elections are administered fairly and honestly, the Republicans will regain majority of the House. I believe they do an extraordinary good job of administering honest elections. The Republicans will, join, will gain a majority in the Senate. And I have a wish and a prayer for these new majorities. 
run the organization in compliance with its rules and its protocols and its wonderful traditions. Allow each member to be honored and appreciated and active in doing what it is they do so well. On every committee, you have people who have devoted a lifetime's career, who have expertise and historical knowledge that should be respected. And if you do that, Mr. New Speaker, you will retain your speakership because you will have an honest, happy, and productive institution, and it will be to your credit. That will mean you will have to stand up to an administration that wants to go to the drawing room together, just a few of us, and we'll work it out and bring it back, and you guys can pass it. You'll have to say, no, we don't do things like that in our body. We do things in an all-inclusive and respectful fashion. Together, we are an institution. And by the way, of all the things I admired about Newt Gingrich, the one thing I admired the most, he understood Congress was a separate and equal body of this government. And its prerogatives and its obligations needed to be protected and they needed to be administered. And thank you, Newt, for that great lesson. That's what we do. We come here to serve the nation, to do so together in an inclusive fashion that is respectful of all our members. All our members. Even those nitwits on the other side of the aisle should be respected. I remember Joe Cap was being dissed because he couldn't throw a perfect spiral. And the response was, I am a starting quarterback in the NFL. I apologize to no one. I was elected by my citizen friends back home. And I apologize to no one. And on their behalf, I demand to be respected. Now, let me just take a personal moment. I wrote this book. People think it's about me. It's not about me, especially those years in Congress. It's about us. We did it together. I was never able to talk about my staff. I couldn't see that. We were a team. We were together. We stuck up for each other. And we stuck by each other. And I wrote it one day. I composed it to typewriter. I found myself typing these words. We loved each other for what we loved together a safe and a prosperous and a happy America. We did that. And we did it so well with such a sense of loyalty and loving affection through a system that I called respectful division of labor that we became known as army guys. And I loved that. I thought it was fitting. <laughs> You could have called them Carry Not Guys. You could have called them Gillespie's if you like good whiskey. <laughs> but we were Army guys. And Michelle Davis was the first to enlighten us guys that the term Army guys is a gender neutral term. <laughs> we are all Army guys. And we discovered, did we not, before we all broke up, there were people that were not of our staff, not in our shop. There were other members of Congress. 
there were even a handful of particularly enlightened senators who called themselves army guys. So if you're an army guy, it's because you love one another for what you love together, a safe and prosperous and happy America. That's why we work. This is the prize for which we toil. So may I ask you, if you are an army guy, will you stand and give yourself a hand? Thank you. Dick Army, it is fantastic to have you back in Washington. Um, I think this is your first, one of your first trips back since you left town, and so it's a, it's amazing that you were able to come here. It's a great book. It's called Leader. Truly, I mean, this is a great, great book. It's a great read about how Washington works and what it doesn't work. Senator Phil Graham, thank you so much for coming from Texas. It was really fantastic having you.